In this episode of Full Stack Radio, I talk to Noel Rappin about common mistakes developers make when handling payments on the web. This is Full Stack Radio, episode 58. Before I get into the interview with Noel today, I just wanted to give a quick update on test-driven Laravel, the TDD course I've been working on. So the course opened up for early access on November 29th at the end of last year, and right now there's over 1,500 people in there learning uh, TDD in Laravel, and the response has been absolutely awesome. Now, the reason that I bring this up is twofold. First of all, if you enjoy this conversation between Noel and I, one of the most important topics that we cover in the testing course is how to test code that involves taking payments and dealing with payment gateways. That includes how to test a Stripe payment gateway wrapper that needs to talk to Stripe and how to write tests and actually communicate with Stripe, as well as how to write a fake implementation of your payment gateway to help you isolate the rest of your application tests from any external services. The second reason that I bring it up is that the course was released in early access in November But now it's February and we're getting closer and closer to the public release date as I'm finishing publishing the rest of the material. So the price is actually going to be going up from the current early access price of $139 up to the regular price of $249. So if you've been thinking about picking it up, now would be a great time to get in there and save yourself a ton of cash. And if you'd like to learn more about the course, you can head over to testdrivenlaravel.com where you can sign up to get four free preview lessons that actually cover how to write a fake implementation of a payment gateway. So check that out if you're interested. That's all I got. On to the interview with Noel. Hey, everyone. Welcome to uh, episode 58 of the Full Stack Radio podcast. I'm your host, Adam, as always. And today, it's my pleasure to be speaking with Noel Rappin. How's it going, Noel? Uh, it's going great. Uh, for anyone who's not familiar with you, do you mind just kind of introducing yourself and giving the listeners a little bit of background on who you are? Sure. Um, I am a lead developer at uh, TableXI, which is a consulting company in Chicago. And I am also a technical author and the writer of uh, probably most popularly within the Rails community, Rails test prescriptions, uh, and most recently, a book on uh, financial processing called Take My Money. Awesome. Yeah. So... Uh, yeah, the reason I wanted to have you on the show was actually to talk about that that new book and some of the kind of the ideas that are in there. Um, the reason that I thought it was kind of interesting was um, to me, when you see a book like Take My Money with a subtitle like Accepting Payments on the Web, I think it's easy to kind of shrug it off as a developer thinking, you know, well, I'm a developer. I know how to integrate Stripe or whatever, you know, easy peasy, no big deal. Uh, but the reason that I caught my attention is because I was familiar with the test prescriptions book and I really enjoyed that. And I thought, well, you know, that book had some pretty, you know, serious content and there is like pretty advanced kind of TDD sort of material. So if Noel has something to say about accepting payments, it's it's probably maybe a little bit more interesting than uh, you might think at a, at a quick glance. So I picked that up the other day and I've been working through it and uh, have been really enjoying it. So I was just kind of wanted to know like what kind of sparked your motivation to write a book on payment handling? So yeah, I agree with you. It does seem to be a lot of developers seem to be like, oh, I already know that. Like what what is there? And so what happened to me is uh, I started working on a project about three or four years ago that was the first time that I had done really serious payment processing in terms of it had some inventory management and it had some you know, processing fees and and it was a gen you know this was genuinely somebody's business and I kind of immediately learned you know I, I, and I was it was a rescue project so it already had a gateway and it already had an API connection I thought well this is but we were building on a whole new set of e-commerce stuff, whole new set of products. I thought, well, you know, with the API there, that call's already done. Most of the hard work's done. 
and quickly realized how naive that was. And specifically, there were things like how to how to integrate inventory management and the payment processor. So you have this setup, a uh, very common issue where I need to make some database changes first to set up the purchase. I then need to make the API call to actually make the purchase. And then I need to make some database calls on my side to reflect the purchase, to mark that it's been completed and do whatever inventory hand-waving I need to do. And that all works great unless something goes wrong. And I started to really get in sort of a panic over the possibility that uh, the database transactions would fail after the, the credit card would go through. And we would do a database rollback never see any evidence of it, and the customer would get charged. And I started looking around and seeing, like, this. I can't be the only person that has ever had this problem. Like, all the steps of this seem really generic. And so how do other people solve this? And I looked around and found, like, nothing written yeah. down about how people solve this. And and eventually I aggregated enough problems like that. And I started. I was starting to do it as, a, like, a blog post or a short screencast. And I was like, there's, there's more here. There, there are a lot of things that I've picked up that that people I think people overlook a lot you know how, how to handle administrative users um, how to handle reports how to handle um, like how to, the, the right and wrong way to handle discounts and like processing fees and things like that and eventually I had a whole book proposal with the <laughs> stuff and and pragmatic bought it so yeah awesome yeah I think it sounds like the sort of problems where it's like serious issues with your payment processing that you probably have no idea that you have you know what yeah. I mean yeah I think and, and some of this stuff only becomes obvious after you've done it for a little bit like it, it, it only becomes clear like why you need to one of the, one of the things that we talk about I talk about in the book is uh, for things like processing fees or taxes that you need to be able to recreate every individual purchase from data and not assume that the logic is going to stay the same like you know if if the if you are charging something and there's a processing fee and the processing fee changes in the in the code logic but you need to go back and run a report on past behavior if you're going through those same code paths like you're not going to get the same answer yeah. anymore that's that's bad there's a lot of like legal and accounting stuff that assumes that you can recreate that the, yeah. those things if you can't, you can get yourself in a lot of trouble. I think like as programmers, we have a tendency to sort of think like, well, that's like a computed value. I can like recreate that right. on the fly. So why would I like denormalize or whatever to kind of duplicate that stuff? But with stuff like payment gateways and payment handling, you really need to think about like freezing that data now. Like we need to capture exactly what happened and treat that as like historical, real concrete stuff. Right. I mean, that's exactly what I did. Like this thing, this application had a, a processing fee that was constant, and I put it in as a constant. Thought like, that's good enough. I don't need to waste all this database space. And then they changed it, and then they went back and we were like, "Why is last month's report weird?" And oh, yeah, that's why. Uh, that's a problem. <laughs> uh, the thing about financial transactions, us uh, over and above, like all of these things, compared to like a search engine or a social media thing is you can get in legal trouble very quickly. Yeah. Um, and people get mad very quickly. Like if you ever have argued with a waiter or something over like 10 cents on a bill, you know, if you are even slightly off on your calculations of what you think people are paying you, or if you tell them you're charging them something and charge them something different, which is super easy to accidentally do. <laughs> um, 
people get people will get really mad uh, as they should like it's you know it's an important thing and and also like anything touching money anything touching a business's profits like that immediately brings in the law and it brings in accountants and it brings in compliance issues in ways that that I think a lot of people are not necessarily prepared to do when they start reading the Stripe API docs. Yeah. Uh, so hopefully the book has a lot of guidance. It's a lot of like, I did things wrong for a couple of years so that you don't have to Yep. Um, kind of advice in the, in the book. Just wanted to take a quick break to thank one of this week's sponsors, and that is Rollbar. So here's what Paul, the founder of CircleCI, had to say about one of their favorite features of Rollbar and how it helps them keep things running at CircleCI. Before we used Rollbar, we used a different error tracking service, and we were shopping for a new one. And so we did the, the tour and looked at, at Rollbar and all of its competitors, and it was it was really the feature set of Rollbar that was super impressive and that made us go there. In particular, the people tracking, I think, is, is really... Uh, it's not not just a great feature but it also kind of speaks our language because we're very focused on making sure that customers are happy and we want to make sure that we have like an individual understanding of what happens to each customer so the fact that we're able to click on this customer is experiencing a lot of bugs and to be able to follow the the progression of bugs that they've been experiencing is very important if we get an email from a customer and the customer says you know your your website keeps glitching on me and being able to to go to rollbar and to say okay you know this individual customer this is how they're experiencing the site because otherwise you, you have to give like an overall state of things and overall things are looking good because if they weren't we'd be dealing with it so i've been using rollbar a lot lately on my SaaS app nitpick ci and loving it uh, if you want to check it out you can head over to rollbar.com slash full stack radio and you can use their bootstrap plan for free for 90 days so check that out and uh, thanks again to rollbar for sponsoring full stack radio so you mentioned the the one kind of common mistake that uh, developers make, which is you know thinking that they can recreate this data computationally instead of having to track it every time. Uh, are there other kind of common uh, gotchas you see people run into, kind of related to that, where people might think that it's okay to do something one way, but they're not considering some case where you know really you should be doing this in a different way? Um, a couple things. I think that people. Well, one thing that's really common is I think there's an assumption that you can just like disregard your administrators. Um, and that I think this is almost every application, like almost everybody at some point says, Oh, we can just train the admins. Like we don't really need to care about their use cases. And in a case, in a, in a lot of businesses, the admins are also customer service or their data management or, or things like that. And, um, they will have needs to do things in the data once you're not developing it. Like, I, you know, if if somebody if somebody comes to the admin and says like, we just made a huge sale, but it's got a, but it was contingent on a ten percent discount that there's nothing in the system for. Can we do it? Like the answer to that has to be yes. Yeah. And and if you don't give them a a good and an easy way to do it, they will come up with bad ad hoc workarounds that will mess something else up. And I think that you know, I think that a lot of people are not prepared to deal with like the. We talk about technical debt, but you can easily get into data debt if the if you have people who are forced to use sort of clumsy workarounds to do things that they need to do all the way all, all at the same time. Um, I also think that people get really hung up on uh, database validations for some of these things, and that there's a tendency to try to put in database validations that 
really the only thing that they can do in practice is cause a transaction to fail sure. after the credit cards come in. Yeah. You need to kind of really think about is the integrity of this piece of data like more important than the sale at my block if something goes wrong? And I think that's a that's a higher bar than I think most people are prepared to yeah. put in for like your one line validates line in, in your Rails active record model. Could you give an example maybe of like a, a purchase where that sort of thing might apply? So we actually had one very like specific to this in this particular application where uh, we had a uh, a lot, so we, we were taking the response from the payment gateway and we were saving some of that response locally. And one of the things we were saving was the, the credit card number that they return, which they return as 12 X's and the last four digits of the credit card number. And we had a validation that this field had to be 12 X's and four digits. And what happened is either the gateway or the gateway's uh, Ruby gem, one of the two, would occasionally hiccup and would just pass null there. And that would fail the validation and fail the save and fail the database transaction after the after the credit card had already gone through. And we were like, um, you know, actually, that's not that important. Like, if we can get that information, if we really need it, back from the gateway, and if it's nil, like, save the credit card anyway. Like, we can go back and clean up the data. Yeah, totally. That makes sense. That that I think is kind of the scariest kind of situation to deal with. Is kind of what you what you talked about at the beginning of this call with. You know, this idea that something might happen on the external service that's handling payment that you can't really easily roll back. But, you know, if something happens that makes your request fail after that happens, now yeah. you've got this like phantom charge out there that the customer is going to see on their credit card, but you might not know that you ever even charged their card or whatever, unless you go and audit, you know, the Stripe payment log or whatever. Right. So I recommend, so there are a couple of things that I recommend in the book, one of which is having really good notification system, roll bar, or what have you, to make sure that you get that those errors happen loudly. Um, and another one is to consider not doing a full database rollback in that case. Like I think it's really easy and and certainly makes a lot of sense that in that case, in the in the case of that kind of failure, you you know, you just put it inside a database transaction and you just let it roll back. And that's really easy and maintains data integrity and is probably the right choice a lot of the time, like 98% of the time. But at least consider like if the credit card goes through and then you have an error, trying to recover the data so it goes into your database in a failed state so that you can find it um, might be helpful. Uh, logging is also really good. Logging errors locally, all of these things that, that, that like give you some visibility into problems that you might be having. Yeah, it's definitely like an area of... Uh, application development that can really stress you out for sure. Trying to think of sort of imagining every possible thing that could go wrong. Like even things like um, simple common things like, well, the network request just failed, not for any particular reason, but just because I need to retry it. You know what I mean? Uh, And handling logic like that. Are there other kind of common scenarios that you see people not handling that they need to think about? Like kind of the unknown unknowns? I mean, I mean, we even get into like, fraud and security issues, although gateways handle a lot of those now, or at least they try to. Ah, Common stuff that people don't handle, I think that there's a lot of, I I think that there are a lot of failure cases that are not necessarily super well handled. Um, I also think that a a lot of times on this, it's possible, it's, um, it's sometimes easier to see the causes, the result of a failure state than the cause. Um, so it's sometimes it's easier to like 
the data this, this transaction's failed and it's left it in a weird state. I can't figure out what it is, but I can f- see it every time it happens and I can fix it every time it happens. And that might be a better use of my time than trying to like recreate very, very hard to reproduce race conditions or something like that. So that's that's one consideration that I don't, I don't know that people necessarily um, take into account. I think that, you know, I mean, we a lot of this is just normal like failure case. We it's most Rails programs I get I bet would not handle a database failure robustly or even a third party network failure super robustly. You know, how important that is depends on like how much money you're bringing in. You know, I worked at Groupon for a while and and they were bringing in tremendous amounts of money on a minute by minute where even just a minute of downtime was a, was a real problem with you know you, was was noticeable. And they had different considerations for what they could do and what they, you know, what was appropriate to them than the project that I was doing that was taking in, you know, a, a fraction of that. For sure. Yeah. Yeah. It makes a lot of sense, I guess. If you're, if your volume is like, you know, maybe I get 10 sales a day or something, it's a lot easier to kind of defer the effort to try and automate some of those failure cases when it's like, well, if, if one thing goes wrong once every four days, you know, I can deal with that manually. Like that's going to, be easier than trying to, you know, account for everything in sort of a programmatic way. But uh, you definitely have to take into consideration your circumstances and, and what you can actually manage manually versus needing to come up with some sort of way to automate. Yeah, one thing that also works in mitigating failure is um, splitting the processing into a bunch of into a series of smaller background jobs, and um, that works. I had one of the one of the really fortunate things I got to do as a result of working on this book was I got to interview Dave Thomas Prag Dave uh, about how the pragmatic store works. And this was one of the things that he talked about um, that you create a series of smaller background jobs. Um, and that makes it a pretty easy to resend something in the case of a network failure. Like it's just a failed delayed job or whatever, and it more or less automatically recues. And it also makes a lot of errors easier to deal with. Um, you don't sort of a process that errors at an earlier step just kind of drops out, and future steps don't necessarily have to like be as paranoid, uh, because in theory, a future step only a future job only happens if a previous job succeeded successfully. So yeah. So if you're taking that approach, like. Would that have like an impact on like the checkout flow and and user experience? Like if you're pushing some of this stuff to happen sort of yeah. asynchronously, where you sort of have to say, "Hey, like we've received your purchase order or whatever," and then if something goes wrong, maybe you just have to email them to say, "Like, hey, this went wrong when we were trying to fulfill your order" or something like that. Yeah, which is basically like Am- that's what Amazon does. For example, if you buy something on Amazon, the you'll hit the you'll hit the checkout button. You'll hit the submit my order button and Amazon will say, great, your order has been submitted. And sometime in the future, uh, and it can be in Amazon's case, it can be hours. Uh, you will get a email that says, Hey, your order's been, here's your receipt or, uh, something went wrong with your credit card, come back. So, you know, <laughs> it doesn't seem to have hurt their, uh, it doesn't seem to have hurt their, their user base much. No, I think, I think it makes a lot of sense. I think that's something that maybe would be easy to not think about as an option. Like maybe when you're first getting started with something like this on something smaller, it's easier to just think about it as sort of a blocking process where you're going to try and process the charge and then return a success state or a failure state. But you're totally right. If you can push everything to to background jobs, you get a lot of 
Like I kind of mentioned this idea of, you know, a network failure happens, you need to retry something. Well, if you can split things up to the, into these small background jobs and an exception gets thrown and a background job can just automatically requeue itself and run again, you get you get a lot of this kind of retry, you know, behavior for free. And then if something really can't work out, you know, you're going to have a failed job log somewhere or something too. So I think there's a lot of really interesting benefits to that. Yeah. So, so you can do that in a couple of different ways. You know, you can do like the basic setup in the, in band um, and then do the credit card processing in a background job and then the successor fail mail in a background job, or you can do the original processing in a background job too. Like it kind of depends on how much work there is for you. Um, and that's true. And that is all appropriate for like a regular purchase. Like if you're selling a service and you're signing people up for subscription, you have a whole different set of, of processing errors. For one thing, you might not be processing the, the charge right away. Like you might have a trial period. So you might not be processing it right away anyway. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Sort of, we've, we've kind of been talking about like some more sort of intermediate sort of considerations to take into account, but there's probably a lot of people who have never done any payment stuff at all. And there's maybe some things that we take for granted as being things that you need to make sure that you're doing that maybe some people aren't aware of. What are sort of like some of the entry level, you know, you better make sure you understand this before dealing with a uh, payment stuff that maybe people should know a bit more about the two. I think the two most basic things, um, number one is you need to understand floating points and why floating point is not appropriate choice for using money. Um, there's actually a video on the prag page for the book where I talk about this a little bit, but, but basically the, the issue is, is that floating point numbers, which is what most programming languages use for decimal numbers and is a in that case like a really easy decision for money the way floating points are implemented in computers is like an approximation it's an encoding of what is like a completely infinite in a multiply uncountably infinite is the math term uncountably infinite set of numbers and so you it, it can't be accurate um, it's always an approximation which is usually fine except that money is precise enough that you can actually get in trouble uh, you can have slight uh, slight mathematical errors, slight rounding errors that add up over time. Um, yeah, like the office space problem. Kind of. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, yes, and and it's and, and like it sounds like a joke, but you actually can. In some ways, the bigger problem is not even so much that you lose the ability to uh, you lose this fraction of a of a penny every time, um, but you also lose a quality. And if you're doing something based on some uh, you know two floating point numbers being equal to each other, which is not a crazy thing to do in a financial uh, application um, that will fail subtly too. So uh, Ruby has the big decimal class, uh, which is an exact exact for you give it a, um, a precision, a number of decimal points precision, and it does uh, precise math to that precision. Uh, and then also the money gem, which wraps that and provides some other currency related features. And I really recommend you use that. And I think the other thing is to really is to get familiar, uh, to get used to the idea of not ever touching customer credit card data on your server in any way, shape, or form. The compliance stuff is really clear, even if you don't save the user's credit card, um, just that it touches the server and can potentially be logged, um, opens you up to compliance issues. So one of the things that Stripe, Stripe goes through a fair amount of hoops in their client-side JavaScript thing to make sure that you don't get you get as little burden of that as possible. Um, for example, the Stripe JavaScript API opens up a its own iframe 
to communicate with Stripe um, specifically uh, because that's a requirement of the, the compliance documentations that, that the communication be through an iframe that, that the communications channel controls. Um, so you really don't want to touch credit card data. It's radioactive. Um, you don't want you don't want it on your servers. You don't want it submitted in forms. You want to do what's what Stripe and the other gateways increasingly do, which is you they authenticate the credit card for you, and they send you a one-time use token, um, and you use that for the rest of your transaction. For sure, it makes a lot of sense. With the compliance stuff, I think I feel like it's easy to look at Stripe and think, okay, well I'm using Stripe, so they handle that stuff for me. I mean, I myself have kind of like just accepted that that's a reality, but I worry that there's other compliance things that I maybe don't know about that I should be worried about that even if Stripe is doing the best they can, there's still probably things that I'm sure I need to be doing uh, to not be getting myself into trouble. So are there any common things that you see people uh, not taking into consideration there? Yeah, one of the fun things is that I became only the second book in the history of the Pragmatic Bookshelf to have a legal disclaimer at the beginning. (laughs) Um, so I'm not an ex, I'm not a lawyer and I'm not an accountant. Um, I, my understanding of the PCI stuff is, uh, if you use Stripe and a couple of under vendor, other vendors, client side stuff, um, then you are as clear as it is possible to get your, your burdens relatively low. Um, and it's mostly things that you're probably already doing because they're decent security practices. Yeah. Um, it's when you start getting into the, the, um, I think the thing that most people don't know is that just having the credit card touch your server, even if it's not persistent on your server opens you up to, uh, a lot of, um, recommendations for that. You, you, you switch to a different PCI compliance regime. Uh, with different with different expectations, I think that I mean beyond that, I think most most programmers, my sense is, don't pay attention to this at all. Um, which is like it's one of those things that like it's fine until it's like catastrophically not, and it's worth trying to to keep that stuff together. Most of the things in the in the spec are largely good security practices that you should be doing anyway, and then you're probably fine. Uh, from that perspective, and as long as you're not, you know, if you're also in like healthcare or something like that, then you have a bunch of other regulations. If you are working for a publicly traded company in the United States, um, you have a bunch of other burdens from uh, Sarbanes-Oxley, which has some limitations on, as it, as it is operationalized, I don't actually know what the actual law says. I do have some experience with how it gets operationalized. Um, it gets operationalized often as a restriction on people being able to develop and administer the same set of software, which can have some burdens on how you structure your team, for example, because you can't somebody can't be a coder and a DevOps person. Ah, interesting. At least that's at least that's how it was implemented at the company that I was at that had to deal with it. Yeah. Um, I don't know. Like that's about as far as I go into that. I think that that you know. If you are doing financial applications at a public company, there's almost certainly somebody whose job it is to look over your shoulder, make sure you're doing it right. So there's not as much of a burden for individual, like on their own developers to to know the ins and outs of that part. 
Just wanted to take a minute to thank Hired for sponsoring Full Stack Radio. So searching for a new job can feel stressful, scary, time-consuming. You know, you got pushy recruiters trying to sell you on roles that you don't want, or job boards that make you feel like you're throwing your resume into a black hole never to be seen again. And sometimes you go through the whole interview process only to find out at the very end that the salary offer or company culture doesn't match what you're looking for. So Hired is the world's most intelligent talent matching platform for full-time and contract opportunities in engineering, development, design, product management, data science, sales, and marketing. The goal of Hired is to make your job search faster, focused, and stress-free. So instead of endlessly applying to companies and hoping for the best, Hired puts you in control of when and how you connect with compelling new opportunities. So you just fill out one simple application, and then top employers apply to hire you. So over a four-week time frame, you'll receive personalized interview requests with upfront salary information, so you can make informed decisions about which opportunities to pursue over a condensed timeline. Hired offers access to more than 4,000 innovative employers, including big companies like Facebook, as well as smaller emerging startups. And the size and type of company you want to connect with is totally up to you. So right now, Hired can help you find new opportunities in 17 major cities in North America, Europe, Asia, and Australia. And they keep all your information totally private, so there's no way that your current employer or past employer can see that you're looking for a new job. The best part about Hired is that it's completely free to you as the person who's looking to get hired. In fact, Hired will actually pay you a $1,000 hiring bonus if you take a job that was offered to you through Hired. And for Full Stack Radio listeners, they're actually doubling that offer to $2,000. So if you're a Full Stack Radio listener who's looking for a new opportunity, you can use Hired to look for a new job. And if you take one through Hired, you'll get $2,000. So if you're interested in more details about that, you can head over to www.hired.com slash fullstackradio to find out more. Thanks to Hired for sponsoring the podcast. Back to the show. Another big part of your book that I think is a a pain point for every person I've ever talked to that's tried to do it is uh, integrating with PayPal. (laughs) Yeah, PayPal is a disaster. (laughs) It's so much harder. So what is there to know? (laughs) I mean, from someone who's gone through this and tried to simplify it for everybody else. One thing to keep in mind is that PayPal is trying to solve the same problem that like Stripe and the Stripe is trying to solve on the client side, like there, and it's just like a 10 year older solution to the problem. It's the problem is I don't necessarily want to give my credit card to this site that I don't know. And PayPal solution was, well, you don't have to, you can give your site to PayPal. And then the company that you're trying to buy from will just integrate with us to do the authentication. It's really the exact same thing that happens when you talk to Stripe client side, just instead of happening like as part of your normal browser process, it happens outside of your normal browser process. So that that's one thing to keep in mind, which is that they are trying to solve the same problem. I like PayPal. The, the problem is, is that PayPal still has, there are certain segments of the market that, that still use PayPal pretty heavily. So it's hard to build a really big system and not offer it at all. Um, at the same time, their documentation is really, really confusing and they have multiple different, services and they don't do a great job of explaining which one is the one you want and and they have multiple even within that they have multiple different versions of their like ruby api uh, multiple different apis it's it's a mess and i wish i had a super clean way of saying like just make this work um one thing that is helpful um and this is helpful both for paypal and also for like subscription things in general that deal with webhooks um, I, I talk about in the book uh, using a tool called Ngrok 
for setting up tunnels. So one of the problems with PayPal is it's really hard to integration test or just work on in development mode because PayPal lives off of sending like web redirecting hooks. back and yeah. forth. And yeah. So the way that, the way that PayPal works, you know, from your development side is you send off the initial request to PayPal and you tell, eventually you tell PayPal, you send off a request to PayPal, PayPal gives you a URL that says like, go send your user to this URL to authenticate to PayPal. And you also say, hey, PayPal, when you're done, send a request back to this URL, that, which is mine, that I can process uh, that, the, that the transaction's been complete. Um, in development mode, that's really hard. You can't really tell PayPal, hey, send something to localhost you know, sure. 3000. Uh, so what NGROC does is it sets up a, it's a free tool that just sets up a tunnel and you can say like, you know, NGROC uh, with whatever port and you're hooked to it on your side and NGROC is hooked to it on the public side and PayPal sends something there and it redirects to your, uh, it port forwards to your local development server, which makes testing that stuff possible. Yeah. Uh, relatively easy. Awesome. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Probably like the primary motivating factor for me to check out your book was just I saw the chapter on PayPal and I was like, man, I lost like two days the other week to trying to integrate PayPal with something and just having zero confidence that anything that I was doing was done in like a like that I was handling everything that I needed to handle because the documentation is just so scattered. Like to me, the process of trying to implement it was go to the first page of the documentation, work through that. But then like there's no clear like step by step here's the next thing it's like okay well now i have to do this so i google it and then i find some other page on their documentation that you couldn't have even got to from the the first one you know what i mean yeah it's it's really really bad so the thing that i really liked about um your book is that it's the only like canonical resource i've seen for how to integrate sort of like the redirect flow which paypal kind of talks about as being more of like a legacy thing but it's honestly like the only paypal integration that i really trust and feel confident working with because it just seems so much conceptually simpler compared to you working with their javascript and the way that they pop up like a separate window entirely and and all this different stuff yeah i mean that's the one that people most use or most think of as being the paypal integration but it's still like it's it's a huge it's a huge pain and you'll notice that I don't really talk about PayPal for subscriptions um, because that's a compounded pain on top of a pain. Yeah. And I just didn't like. I, I don't see a lot of people really using PayPal for subscriptions as much anyways. I feel like if I was going to build something that needed subscriptions, I would feel comfortable just doing credit card just because that seems to be sort of like the industry standard. But for <laughs> stuff been, that's yeah, one off. Become, yeah. I mean, the, the gateways, Stripe and Braintree and whatever, have put a lot of effort into making that true. Um, and making it so that you don't ever want to start credit cards and you don't ever want to deal with subscription stuff on your own and they'll just take care of it. Like five years ago, if you wanted to do subscription kind of stuff, you needed to hold on to the user's credit card and, and manually recharge them. And there's no real reason to do that anymore unless you have like really, really crazy local logic. Yeah, makes a lot of sense. Uh, you mentioned that using NGROC can be really helpful for trying to test some of this stuff. So I'd love to learn more about some of what are your testing strategies are in general when you're dealing with code that needs to talk to payment gateways and how you design the stuff that talks to the payment gateway versus the stuff that has to interact with you know, your payment gateway implementation and stuff like that. What are just kind of some of the overall considerations that you try to consider when you're trying to design this stuff in a way that you can test it? So there's two, the important thing to te- for testing is to not be dependent on hitting the internet when you test. 
Um, and, and so there's sort of gen generally when you're testing any third-party tool, I like to write my own custom wrapper around it. Um, and so all the uh, communication with that third-party tool goes through my code first, my application code. And there's a couple of reasons for that, one of which is that my domain logic might be different from the API. So it lets the rest of the application speak the domain logic and then pass through the wrapper uh, where it converts to Stripe's logic or whatever. Um, and that, but the other thing is, is that it gives us a single point of contact, which makes testing much easier. So uh, from the point of view of things that interact with the gateway, I can write test doubles for my wrapper application, and then they don't have to hit the full, uh, the, the full service. Um, and that makes unit testing a lot easier, a lot more straightforward. Um, I also use VCR, the VCR gem pretty heavily. Um, the VCR gem, the first time you run an integration test, it will actually make your third-party network call. It will store the results of it locally, and then the next time it runs, it will just swap in that uh, third-party result rather than make the actual call. Um, it's a really quick way to stub. It's actually so easy that it kind of gets in the way of the good practice of building the wrapper. Like It makes that kind of it, it makes that kind of code much less necessary from testing point of view because it's so easy to create this stub of a uh, fake network call. Um, uh, but it's still a good practice to, to um, have all of your third-party integration go through a single point. It makes dealing with changes in the API much easier and makes testing much easier. Um, and, it, and it makes the rest of your code not have to care about the details of the API in a way that tends to be valuable. Yeah. Yeah, I found that to be definitely the way to go too. Like with the wrappers, you can, because you own the wrapper, you can kind of know like, okay, well, this is stable. So as long as I know that the rest of my code is interacting with the wrapper in the way that I want it to, as long as I never touch the wrapper again, I can stub that out and know that the rest of the application is working fine using the test doubles and stuff. And then the other benefit that I found is, you know, with stuff like Stripe, they make it pretty easy to actually integration test your wrappers against Stripe because they make it... They give you like a nice sandbox environment where, you know, the API is pretty fleshed out. So it's easy to kind of just get the data that you want. And then you can use something like VCR, like you said, so you only have to do it once. But even in cases where it's impossible to integration test the wrapper, because maybe the service that you're integrating with doesn't provide any sort of environment to make it easy to do. At least, you know, you've got all that code localized kind of in one place. So, you know, like this is the risky code where if I change this, I should probably manually verify that at least it, it still works, you know? Yeah, definitely. Awesome. Well, uh, maybe that's a good place to uh, start wrapping things up. Is there any other kind of final tips or tidbits of information that you wanted to leave people with when it comes to uh, integrating with payment gateways and taking payments on the web? Yeah, we've covered a lot of stuff actually pretty quickly. I think that the, the main thing is, um, Plan for failure, like make sure that your users, your the users that you have that are going to be dealing with this data have the tools they need and and, and think about how you're storing that data over time uh, that, that you're going to need to be able to get it back. Like Those are the most important things, I think. Awesome. What's the best way for people to kind of keep up with what you're doing and maybe learn more about the book? Sure. So uh, you can follow me on Twitter. I'm Noel Rapp at N-O-E-L-R-A-P. Um, I'm also on the web at noelrappin.com. Uh, which is there's kind of a watch this space. There's going to be a, a, a testing course probably coming available, popping in the next week or couple weeks or month or so. The book is available pragmatic at uh, the Pragmatic Bookshelf, which is pragprog.com. 
Um, it should also be shipping on Amazon by the time this goes out. So any the, all the places you normally would buy books, uh, plus pridepride.com, which is, I think, the only source for the eBooks. Uh, yeah, that's that's where you can find me. Awesome, man. Well, uh, thanks a ton for coming on and uh, sharing some of these insights with me and giving me your time. It's been an absolute pleasure chatting with you about yeah, this stuff. thanks. It was great to talk to you too. Cool. Uh, for anybody who is interested in checking out the uh, show notes and maybe grabbing a link to check out Noel's book, Take My Money, you can head to fullstackradio.com slash 58. And I can highly recommend this book. I, I picked it up myself and I've been working through it and it's been really awesome. It's definitely not a book targeted at like people learning how to build their first web app that needs to take payments. It's definitely targeted at like people who maybe think they already know how to take payments on the web and need to learn some stuff about, you know, things that they're not taking into consideration. So if you're an intermediate to advanced programmer, there's definitely tons of stuff in there that you're going to take away. So highly recommend it. Thank you. Thank you. Well, thanks again, Noel. And uh, I'll see everyone next time.